This message comes from NPR sponsor Jobs Ohio. Ohio's business-friendly climate and people-friendly quality of life make it an ideal environment for new and growing businesses to thrive. Visit ohioisforleaders.com to learn more. Hey, just before we start the show, a bit of news. So last year, after a year of doing live shows, we decided we wanted a deeper experience with you, with our community. So we decided to launch a full-day How I Built This Summit. And it was so amazing and fun that we're doing it again this year. But this time, we're doing it over two days. It's happening October 22nd to 23rd in San Francisco with support from American Express. And this year, we are doubling down on our main stage speakers. You're going to be able to hear from and probably even meet some of the greatest living founders and entrepreneurs in the world, including Sarah Blakely of Spanx, Stuart Butterfield of Slack, Kevin Sistrom and Mike Krieger of Instagram, Tarek Fareed of Edible Arrangements, David Neeleman of JetBlue, Troy Carter, who managed Lady Gaga, Marcia Kilgore of Bliss, Jen Rubio of Away, and many others, including special surprises. And on top of that, we'll have dozens of side sessions with experts and special guests on everything from the nuts and bolts of starting and scaling your business to ways of thinking in a more innovative and creative way. The food is great. The coffee is great. The party is super fun. The How I Built This Summit is one of the best investments you can make in your own professional and personal development. And most importantly, you will meet people who will become lifelong friends and contacts. So please join us in San Francisco, October 22nd to 23rd at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts to find out more and to get your tickets, including early bird pricing available for just a few more weeks. Go to summit.npr.org. When I got that $60,000 loan, within six months, I went back and asked them for five hundred. And they said, here, here's, sure, here's 500000 bucks." <laughs> no, they said no. Well, they didn't say no. They said, no, not without equity. And we were like, equity? Equity in what? We've got nothing. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how Stacy Madison turned day-old pita bread into a new snack, Stacy's Pita Chips, and then went on to sell her brand to one of the world's biggest food companies for a quarter of a billion dollars. So there are some startup stories where most of us are probably thinking, I couldn't do that, like Squarespace. If you heard that episode, you'll remember that Anthony Casalina was and is a gifted computer programmer. He had a highly specialized skill. Same story with Steve Madden. He literally designed and then fashioned shoes from leather and sold them. But then there are the stories where most of us can actually imagine doing that thing ourselves. Like Brian Scudamore, who bought an old truck and offered to haul away people's trash. That's how he started 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Or Lisa Price, who tinkered with homemade lotions in her kitchen. She went on to sell her brand, Carol's Daughter, to L'Oreal. Well, today's story is of the second variety, the kind of story that almost anyone can relate to because it is such a simple and elegant idea. You take pita bread, you cut it into wedges, you bake it, throw some Parmesan or seasoning on it, and voila, you've got Stacy's pita chips. Now, even though the snack food industry today is a $66 billion juggernaut, Stacy Madison did not have a grand master plan to disrupt snack foods in the late 1990s. At that time, she and her boyfriend were literally selling pita wrap sandwiches from a sandwich cart in downtown Boston. The pita chips were an afterthought, a way to use up those extra pitas at the end of the day. Pita chips were never supposed to make Stacy rich, but eventually, Frito-Lay would come knocking with a fistful of dollars. But long before that, long before Stacy even sold her first sandwich, she was on an entirely different path. She grew up in the suburbs near Boston. 
And after college, Stacy went out to California to get a master's degree in social work. She thought about becoming a psychologist like her dad, but he wasn't so enthusiastic about that. He felt I should always become a social worker rather than go on to get my PhD and be a psychologist. He was like, oh, that's no profession for a woman. That's hmm. one thing that he said was smile and look pretty and you will find a husband. You know, I don't want to make him sound like a jerk. No, and he wasn't. Not at all. He was like a caring, loving man that put his family first, but he was also a product of the 50s. Sure. So once you get your uh, master's degree, um, I read that you, you actually moved to Washington, D.C. To, um, to, to do what? To, to do social work? Yes. I worked in a group home for homeless, pregnant, drug-addicted women. And I have to tell you, I mean, I loved the job. It was very rewarding. But at the time, I think I made $22,000 a year. And it was really paycheck to paycheck and very hard to survive on that kind of an income. So I decided to go and get licensed and be able to private practice, which eventually I did go on to do. But I found it very isolating. Huh. You know, now I've got to go and I unlock the door and and I do, you know, marriage counseling. And then my evening is over. I've seen five or six patients and I close the door behind me and I go home. Mm. And I put a lot of effort into getting those degrees and licenses and realized that it ultimately it probably just was not for me. So you're, you're uh, I guess, roughly uh, 30 years old at this time. And, and by the way, you were engaged to, to a guy named Rick, right? No, that ended, I, I think it was just mutual. I think ultimately it was just not the right thing. I think we just both agreed. We had had the place picked out that we were going to get married. And it was kind of a bizarre story, but... I went and I had a massage. This is, I know it sounds like I'm going off on a tangent here, but it'll come back. <laughs> um, I went and I had a massage, and the woman told me to take off all my jewelry and blah, 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 blah. And I took it off, I put it in the dish, got my massage, and I got up and I went to get dressed, and I was like, oh my God, all my jewelry is gone, including my ring my engagement ring and I was just you know it was from his family it was like I was just so upset and the girl was gone she had gone gone like never to return I think she took off to Florida or somewhere she never came back to work she just kind of took all my stuff wow. but with Rick and I it was kind of like the ring wasn't replaced immediately even and I don't care about the ring even if it's just a cigar brand or something like that that it kind of took so long replacing the ring that it forced both of us to look at should we really be doing this maybe this was a sign or something and um, ultimately yeah we just decided maybe we shouldn't get married <laughs> so you um, so you guys split up uh, meantime yeah there was this guy, Mark Andrus, who you had met through your brother a few years before. He was a friend. Did you guys start dating or would you just kind of keep yeah. in touch? So he was still a friend and I talked to him all the time about my disengagement and all of that. He was super supportive and eventually our friendship led to dating and he was getting his PhD. So he was doing an internship in Hawaii and said, well, why don't you come out to Hawaii? And what did you do in Hawaii? So um, Hawaii was an amazing experience. We lived in just this tiny box, and there was no kitchen or anything, and, it, and there was no bedroom. There was basically a cot, and we bought an electric wok, and we used to cook in the wok. We'd wash it in the bathtub, and... Eventually, we found a roommate, and she had a nicer apartment, and we worked out a deal where we would take her second bedroom, and in exchange for a lower rent, we would cook for her. Hmm. And while I was out there, I worked at a restaurant, and I got a job at a, as an assistant manager, and the restaurant was going to open up a surf theme, you know, another location, a surf theme restaurant. Hmm. And 
they said, do you want to be part of that opening? And I said, yeah, that's great. Which, thinking back, I'm like, wow, that was great experience. I got kind of experience of learning to start a business. Mm. Yeah. We had this big opening with, you know, all the surfers, the local surfers in Hawaii and even retired surfers. They came and the owners of the restaurant were like, if we could pull this off, you know, you guys are going to get a big bonus and blah, blah, blah. And we did. I mean, we were, money was coming in left and right and to the point that we had to stuff it in beer boxes and bring the cash down to the, to the basement because they couldn't fit it all in the register. It was just crazy. So successful opening of the restaurant. Um, a couple of weeks later, I sat down with my general manager and said, how about the bonuses they were talking about, you know, when they're coming? And, you know, and he's like, well, let me meet with the owners and get back to you waited another couple of weeks, sat down with him again. And he said, well, I spoke to the owners and they've decided that we need to let you go. (laughs) And wow, I was devastated. I never lost a job in my life. And then I, I remember speaking to my aunt who was in the restaurant business and she's saying, are you kidding me? Don't be so naive. They always hire people to get restaurants open and then they let them go. And Ultimately, I circled back and said, well, if I can work this hard for someone else, then why can't I do it for myself? Huh. And it's it kind of funny because at that point, Mark was still in his internship and we were in these high-rise buildings in downtown Honolulu and we were cooking meals for our roommate anyway. And we figured, well, why not just put a sign in the bottom of the building and when people got home, they could, well, it was at the time of fax machines, they could fax over an order and we would just have their dinner ready. Wait, you would, you and Mark, because Mark was a trained psychologist, right? I mean, that, that's what his work was. Yeah. But you guys were also just like pretty good home cooks? Yeah, we loved cooking. I mean, Mark was a total foodie and we marketed to our building and the surrounding buildings that if anybody else wanted us to cook them dinner that we would do that too we called it condo cuisine and what were you offering like was it just like tonight's dinner is or you could order from a a menu of things oh no it was just a more of a you know you had a choice between two or three items um you know we had seared tuna with a pineapple salsa and things like that um needless to say we were cooking in our apartment and got very quickly shut down. <laughs> Some guy, you know, called or knocked on the door and was like, you can't do this. So basically the <laughs> health department was like, you don't have a license to do this. So so yeah. that didn't last long. Yeah, it was the health department that was like, yeah, you are not doing this. If you want to do this, you have to get into a commercial kitchen and you have to, right. et cetera, et cetera. So that dream, <laughs> that dream died. And how, how long, by the way, did it last before you were shut down? Oh, a couple months, three or four <laughs> months. I mean, that clearly, like that experience kind of set into motion this idea that maybe we could do some kind of business. Yes, definitely. And it kind of picked me back up onto my feet after losing that other job. Hmm. And Mark, even though he's getting his doctorate at this point, he always wanted to be a chef. Hmm. Um, He came from a family of doctors and it was kind of just that's what you're going to be. But it also meant that he was setting aside his dream of becoming a chef. So it was a really crazy decision, but we decided when we got back to Massachusetts, we would try something in the food business. Wow. So, okay, Mark has a PhD in clinical psychology. You are a social worker by training. You always knew that you were going to go back to Boston because that's where both of you guys were, I guess from? Yeah, New England. And he was going to become a psychologist, but I guess your plan was, hey, before you do that, let's just kind of test out this food business idea for a short time. Yeah. (laughs) Going into this, I mean, you got to also keep in mind the reality of the fact that he's got $100,000 in student loans. I don't have a penny to my name. Right. (laughs) So you, you moved back to Boston, 1996. What did you guys decide to do? So... We decided to buy a food cart because we couldn't afford anything else. I think it was 
$5,000 and I worked with my sister who she owned a catering company in downtown Boston. Mm -hmm. She was a huge help in, you know, I laid out the menu and, and she would look at the menu and tell me, you know, you, you have too many items on here. You're going to have too big of an inventory. You have to streamline this. You have to like, she kind of always gave us that reality check on, on what when that business sense. And at the same time, as because now we learned you have to be in a facility. <laughs> so all of our menu we prepped and made out of her catering place in Boston. So what kind of food were you making? I mean, this is this is like I'm imagining like a hot dog push cart with like, you know, a water bin that's hot and warm and yes. like another bin to keep buns like steaming hot. Was that what the food cart looked like? Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> The food cart, yes, was a cart with um, that was a hot dog cart, and we used to go out at night after the bars closed, and we did the sausage scene. I mean, we were cooking up, and we were just trying to get money any way that we could so that we could revamp the cart. And once we collected enough money, then we put the cart in to a shop, and you know, I designed it, you know, made a pretty front and a beautiful green awning and we hollowed the whole thing out and made it almost into a deli counter and we served healthy sandwiches rolled in pita bread off of the food cart and then we made everything to order so these were like i mean wraps kind of became a big thing in the 2000s it's the late 90s and I remember this like pita pita bread sandwiches started to just like pop up all over the place yeah but just to clarify that it was basically a chicken caesar rolled in a piece of pita bread. Got it. There were very few options, but we made, uh, you know, ours were, you know, we had goat cheese, we had turkey and Havarti, and we had more upscale choices. So we prepared, we sliced all the meat, we put everything in a giant cooler, and then we went to downtown Boston. We would literally roll the cart up the street and put it on the corner of Chauncey and Summer Street, and we'd get an ice delivery to the corner, and we'd throw the ice in the bottom, and then we'd put out all of the ingredients, and then we'd roll it up in the pita bread, and then we had this big white piece of paper, and we'd roll the sandwich in the white piece of paper, and we'd twist the bottom. So people were walking around, it was almost like they had this big white club, and, huh. and so it was really good, because they'd walk away, and other people would say, ooh, that looks good, where'd What's you that? get that? Yeah. yeah. And what, what was the name of the, did you have a name for the push cart? Stacy's Delights. Stacy's Delights. D apostrophe L-I-T-E-S. D-L-I-T-E-S. So it wasn't even delights, it was delights. That is so 90s. I love that. Yeah. How did it do? Was it a hit? Did you guys get customers, like lots of customers right away? Yes, it was a hit. Huh. But we were not the only food cart down there. You have to remember that, you know, up this, you know, yeah. 50 yards away is the pretzel cart and then there's the burrito guy and then there's, you know, so it was at a time when in the food cart world, I mean, now a food cart is more hip and trendy and and it's and a food truck now. More inviting. It's yeah. more of a food truck. But at the time a food cart had the connotation of um dirty and disgusting. Yeah. But the way that the cart was designed and that it was presented and that it looked and we had fresh tomatoes, you know, a mountain of them out front. And it was it broke the traditional mold of what is a food cart. Yeah. Yeah. And every day we ordered fresh bread. Where would you get the bread from? Just a local bakery. And it would always over order the bread because you can run out of alfalfa sprouts, you can run out of tomatoes, and it's not going to be a big deal. But in this business, if you run out of bread, you're closed. Yeah. So I, I think I see where this is going. So you, you have all this extra bread and you're thinking, what do we do with this extra bread? Yeah. And we didn't want to use it the second day because it's not as pliable to roll the pita sandwiches. Sure. So when we got back to the kitchen, we would cut them up and bake them into different flavor chips. And the idea was that you would you would do what with the pita chips? You would give them away? You would sell them? Like what? Initially, what were you going to do with them? So initially, it was just a way to retain our customer base and to keep people happy as they were waiting in line. Ah, uh, because it was a long wait. You had every pita sandwich made to order. 
Yes, and people would, you know, we hired a, a college student. She was a cashier, but in between she'd go up and down with a basket of pita chips and just give them for free to people standing in line while they waited. And people loved it because it was kind of like a happy hour. And, you know, we gave them away for free, but people started saying that they did want to buy them. So initially we would just put some in a little baggie with a little ribbon and, and keep a basket of them out on the food cart as well. And you could buy it for like 50 cents or an, a dollar or something. Yeah, a buck with the yeah. sandwich. And just, just out of curiosity, like, did you guys experiment with the baking? Because pita bread can, can like burn pretty quickly and it can get, right? Like, I have to assume that you had to experiment with like the right temperature and the right flavors and stuff like that. That came later. Initially, we just baked the cinnamon sugar and the Parmesan garlic. Everybody thinks Simply Naked was our first flavor. It wasn't. Hmm. It was the uh, Parmesan and the cinnamon sugar. We were baking them in a four-rack oven. I mean, literally four or maybe eight trays. Sorry, it's eight-rack oven. So we could spread out the pita chips on a tray, and we could bake eight of them at a time. And, you know, you really, we were making toast. Yeah, you were making thin slices of toast. Really good toast. Yeah, really good toast. <laughs> and um, it wasn't until later, as the company started growing, that there was a, a huge jump between I'm going to make toast in my oven and I'm going to manufacture. Hmm. So and I, keeping in mind, hmm, I mean, hmm. Mark's deferring his loans and deferring his loans, and you know, that adds up. Yeah, he's not, at this point, he's like full on in the food business, and you are too. He's not um, using his PhD in clinical psychology. Yeah, right. You know, I got. I was a clinical social worker. He's got his PhD in psychology, and we're on a street corner selling sandwiches. And so at that point, you know, we are all in. We are going to do something, and we could not put our tail between our legs and go running home. When we come back... As Stacy and Mark make a full pivot to pita chips and shake off the warnings of an industry expert who says they will never grow their business. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M from helping drive vaccine and therapy development with advanced purification technologies to developing an adjuvant that helps boost vaccine effectiveness, the research scientists at 3M are delivering innovative healthcare solutions to help us today and prepare us to better tackle what's next. Learn more at 3m.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila, Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave, he worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. So it's the late 1990s, and Stacy and Mark have created kind of a side hustle out of a side hustle, selling pita chips from the little sandwich cart they started in Boston. And at a certain point, the chips are doing so well that they decide to make more of them. But they're using an oven that can only make eight racks of them at a time. But then they find a way to scale up. We met a very nice woman when we were doing the food cart who sold pretzels. Um, it was Boston Pretzel Bakery. And she said, oh, I have a 40-rack oven. Why don't you come try to make them over there? Huh. So we went over to Boston Pretzel, and we mixed up our pita, the pita chips, and we were able to make a rack of 40 of them at a time. Instead of, you know, instead of eight trays, we could make 40 trays. And... She had backup racks, so while 40 were in the oven, we could load up another 40 trays, and 40 came out and 40 went in. And we were like, okay, well, this, this kind of makes more sense. What I'm trying to understand is, like, at what point running this cart, 
did you and Mark say, you know what, actually, the business we really should focus on is the pita chips and not the pita sandwiches? So I think the coming about of that whole thing was the struggle of getting an inside location. And, you know, come winter, it's really rough being out there in the cold. Yeah. And we started working with a realtor, and the realtor kind of laughed at us and said, if you want a tiny little indoor location near where you are, because we want to keep our following of people, um, you and your food cart can stand online behind... Oban Pan, Dunkin' Donuts. At the time, Starbucks was coming into the world. You know, everybody wants those little spaces. And we realized we had to make a choice. Hmm. And we decided to go for the pita chips because in the winter, I was working on on the pita chips and, and the bag and the design and the licensing and all that I needed to do in order to get that off the ground. So with the pita chips, we could get bigger, faster yeah. And I took a bag, you know, we, we had put them in almost like a coffee bag, like with a little window. Oh, yeah. Plus a little plastic bag inside of the paper bag. So a lot of labor went into it. But you know what? I took the bag and I, I walked into Bread and Circus in downtown Boston and I said, hi, I'm Stacy. These are my chips and I'd love for you to give them a try. Wait, you just walked into a... Bread and Circus, which eventually was was bought by Whole Foods, and you asked, did you ask for the manager? Yep. Like, yeah. Okay. And what did the manager say? He said, "Wow, these are good." Huh? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to get them. And now we have one store. Yeah. There was like six or eight of these Bread and Circus stores, and he showed them to corporate. Huh. And there was nothing in them; they were all natural. And it was the time of the beginning of the natural food revolution and, and that's just what we were innately doing and and obviously you guys presumably you chose the name Stacy's pita chips just because that's what it was called Stacy's delight when you were a food cart right we chose it because we thought that a female name on a snack food brand would sell more than a male name ah you know the woman in the kitchen kind of thing is that I hate to say it but that's really that was the, the thought behind it was that it sounded better than than Marks. Hmm. Let's just pause for a moment and, and talk about money because even though you were getting some stores, you know, willing to pick up the chips and uh, to sell them, I, I can't imagine your business could could operate entirely on like the sale of pita chips. How did you have money to, to run this thing? Yeah. I mean, we had a lot of debt between the two of us. We ran up our credit cards. We applied for so I, I was I started working with the neighborhood development center and they helped me write a business plan. There was I, I really networked with everybody I could possibly draw information from. Hmm. Um, so there was the neighborhood center, there was um, I think Jewish vocational services was in downtown Boston and there was this one girl that used to eat at the cart and she said to me um, how do you know if you have enough bread? And hmm. she'd ask all these weird questions. And and one day I said, why are you asking me these weird questions? She said, well, I teach a business plan boot camp and you know, I use your cart as an example all the time. Wow. And I said, really? I'm like, can I take that class? <laughs> She's like, yeah, you want to take you? Come on over. And, huh. and I went and I took an eight-week business plan boot camp. So between all of these agencies that I kind of worked with, because remember, I didn't have a business degree. I didn't know I didn't know what a business plan was. Yeah. So after that eight weeks, I realized that I didn't just need $25,000 for the packaging machine, but I also needed $20,000 to buy bags yeah. to run on the machine. And then I needed $20,000 for this thing that people kept calling working capital. So that was all new to me. So I, where I thought I only needed twenty five thousand dollars, you needed I, sixty. I needed sixty. Yeah, right. How did you get sixty thousand dollars? So the neighborhood development center in Jamaica Plain helped me spruce up my business plan a little bit and put me in touch with a bank that they used that worked with the SBA. So we had to put down twenty percent of the sixty thousand, and that's where our family 
kicked in. You, you needed to put up 12000 bucks in collateral, basically? Uh, yeah. And that was a $60,000 loan from a small business administration-backed bank in Boston. Yep. So you got $60,000, which gave you how much runway? How, how long could you could you function off $60,000? Because you, you're, you're, you're talking about needing to buy a machine to seal the bags, to buy the bags, and, and then you're not left with a whole lot. $60,000 was not going to go very far because, yes, we bought the machine, we bought the bags. But the one thing that we did have, we had customers, hmm. both the consumer and the retailers that loved our chips and kept reordering. And when I got that $60,000 loan, within six months, I went back and asked them for 500. Wow. And they and they said, here, here's <laughs> sure, here's 500,000 bucks. <laughs> no, no, they said no. Well, they didn't say no. They said no, not without equity. And we were like, equity? Equity in what? We've got nothing. Yeah. I mean, this company's not worth anything at this point. Um, so they said no to 500. And over a couple of months, we were able to scale it back. And they did say yes to 350. Wow. So, so you got a, a $350,000 loan from the bank. Yeah. But how did you get the word out about the pita chips? I get it that you were you were kind of pounding the pavement and you were asking for managers at 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 local, you know, markets and asking to talk with them, but how did people find out about the chips? Was it entirely word of mouth? I mean, this is pre-internet, pre-social media, pre I mean, you didn't have ad dollars. We would go everywhere we could to sample. So we would go into the store and we would set up a table and we would just give away chips for free, just like we did on the cart. Huh. And people would try them and they would buy them. And that just that's how we built our customer base. We had three words, sample, sample, sample. Did you at this point have a vision for how big this could be? Were you and Mark saying... Because I have to assume you were still doing a lot of the legwork. You were still maybe even baking the chips and uh, or maybe hiring people to help you. But did you think this is going to be huge? It's going to be a national brand? Or was, was that your ambition at this point or not quite? No. Our goal was to be a regional brand, more like Cape Cod potato chips. And we were we were going to keep things manageable and in the Northeast. But what happened was with the growth of the natural food industry, there were these pockets like Colorado and Atlanta and California. And there were these little pockets where the natural food business was really booming. <laughs> and you know, the whole creation of Whole Foods and, and them buying up all of these smaller stores, we were in all those smaller stores. So we were in the Bread and Circus and Wild Harvest, and then they all became Whole Foods, yeah. which grew tremendously. So our initial plan to be a small regional brand, we had to rethink that. And I think that, you know, one of the things that Mark and I were really good at was, you know, not being so locked in to a straight path that we were able to see when other opportunities came along. So for example, the pita chips over the food cart, or um, you know, rather than selling to small gourmet f food stores, we're gonna go into the natural food. You know, we're, we're like, well, we could sell to these 10 stores or this one chain has 100. But the, the business was still you and Mark, right? It was, you were the only permanent employees at this point? So, it was Mark and I for the first two years, and then my brother, who at this point had his PhD also, um, and we said to him, you want to sell some chips? And, you know, and ha 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 ha, we were all joking around about it. And then he came back like a couple weeks later and said, you know what, if I don't try this now, He's married. They don't have kids. They don't, if I don't try this now, when am I going to try it again? He's like, sure. Huh. Because his wife, she was an accountant. She had a steady income. So, you know, he said, you can just pay me minimum wage and then we'll give it a try. And after the first of the year, you, know, you can just kind of start paying me back as we start generating a little bit of money. And that's what really, really important is that in the beginning, we 
surrounded ourselves with believers. I mean, here you've got two psychologists and a social worker running a pita chip business, right? Like, how implausible is that? Like, what? Like nobody would say, I want to start my business. I need two psychologists and a social worker. <laughs> but somehow, like, you're, you guys yeah. all brought these skill sets to this to this thing. I was street smart, and those guys were both street smart and book smart. You know, so we all worked together on trying to figure out how we're going to do this. And I'll tell you, at one point, we had paid $1,500, and we flew a consultant up from Frito. Huh. Uh, he was a retired Frito guy, and he walked into our how we were running things. <laughs> And he was just like, these are very good and they taste good, but this cannot be done. Huh. This is a home-baked type product and it's fine, but you won't be able to scale this business. Wait, why did he say that? Was Were you literally like hand cutting the pita, pita bread? And, I mean, yeah. was it, Mark's okay. right bicep was like three times the size of his left because he was literally using a knife to cut bread. Wow. So when this guy walked in and he saw, you know, we're cut, hand cutting bread and we're hand bagging everything and each batch took a certain amount of time and then we have to like, you know, scrape off the trays and clean everything. And he was just like, yeah, you'll never be able to bring this product to market on any kind of scale. So for us, that was a really hard blow. I bet. But... We also still found it hard to believe. Like, hmm. if we can take 40 racks, you know, 40 trays of pita chips, and we can make that, why can't we just line up a whole bunch of these ovens and be able to make so many racks at a time? Hmm. And then what that led to was us realizing we needed a conveyorized oven. You needed a conveyor belt oven where you could just throw the pita on there and it would just go through the conveyor belt and then p p come out the end and just into a just a big barrel and the pita chips were made. Yeah, in the end game, we ended up having to purchase a custom-built oven. It was the size of, of a 52-foot, like an 18-wheeler truck. Wow. But you were still, I mean, or Mark was still hand-slicing the pita into the right shapes. You can't scale that. Like one or two or ten people can't do that. So how did you solve that problem? You're right on target here. <laughs> so you, we, we broke it down into each stage of making a pita chip. And that piece of it, what we did was we, we would go and we would tour other factories. So we went down to Cape Cod Potato Chips and we went on that tour that everybody in Cape Cod goes on that tour. Oh, you just went as tourists? We went as tourists. Nice. And we looked through that window and we saw they were cutting potatoes with this machine and we asked them well how does that machine cut the potatoes and they gave us the name of the machine and then we went out and we contacted that company and said this is what we're trying to do and we had this guy who worked for us who could tinker with anything and so what we ended up buying was a machine that used to cut carrots for Campbell's soup so you know how they cut those tiny little squares? Sure. Well, what he did is he took those blades and spaced them further apart. And when he first spaced these blades and, and all of us are kind of gathered around the opposite end of the machine holding a bucket where the, these attempted chips are going to come out. And so he feeds the bread into the machine. He starts tossing, you know, a piece of bread, a piece of bread, a piece of bread. And we're standing out at the other end and we're like... Holy sh! Lo and behold, pita chips. <laughs> it's a chip, you know. And that was the very last day that Mark ever cut a piece of bread. You and Mark eventually got married, right? You were business partners, and then you got married because you were together, right? Yes, we had been together for a long time, and eventually we just got married hmm. uh, in in '97, and all was good. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> All right, 1999, you get your production method down, you get the machines you need, your revenue is growing. 
Um, I have to imagine that there are big chip companies looking at you guys, even though you're this tiny little New England-based pita chip company, and thinking, huh, pita chips, that's the new craze. Let's make pita chips and crush these guys. Not really, because so at this point in time in the company, as we just started to grow, it was also during the time of the no-carb phase. <laughs> it uh. was all those no-carb, low-carb diets. Oh, yeah. And we were like, here we are. Once again, we're making toast. And we thought, oh, my God, that's going to put us out of business. Like all these time, all these things along the way, you think, oh, my God, that's going to put us out of business. Oh, my God, that's going to put us out of business. But ultimately, people loved the chips. It was something people ate all the time, and it was becoming a staple in their cabinet. It wasn't huh. just a one-time purchase. Yeah. All right. So you guys are uh, kind of operating under the radar but growing steadily. Do you remember the first year you you actually turned a profit, like a significant profit? Was it was it in nineteen ninety nine or in two thousand? Um, people say it takes three years. I would say it takes five. Right. So it took some time. Yeah. But I guess you guys hit a million dollars in revenue, like a, a, around two thousand one, which sounds super impressive. Did did that mean that you guys were all making lots of money? No. We really paid ourselves very little. And if anything, we really weren't making anything because everything went back into, you know, if we needed another oven. Well, you know, you don't buy this, you don't buy that, you don't do this because you need another oven. Yeah. All right. So so you guys, uh, by 2001, you're, you're starting to become more sort of stable in the production process. Uh, but just about, I think about five years after the two of you get married, you and Mark divorce. You decide to get a divorce that year. Yeah. But then you stay on as 50-50 as business partners. That This is not normally how the story unfolds. Like normally, this is very messy and traumatic and difficult. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like that's what happened. Yeah. Like I'm not going to say we didn't argue. I mean, certainly we argued over a lot of things. I mean, there's a lot of tension. And the employees had to put up with us like, ah, <laughs> each other and and you know what and they they'd go look oh boy there they go and they turn around and they leave the room and you know and then and then eventually everybody would come back to their desk and 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 that's okay but we had a common goal and i would have to say i think he'd probably agree that during the time that we were married for the most part it was a successful marriage but we also had a successful divorce mm. It was clean and it was clear, and we shared the company like it was our child, and everything that we did was in the best interest of the company. So we went to court together, and we went before the judge, and we said we want to get a divorce, and we're splitting this 50-50, and we really had no assets. Yeah. Everything we had was the company, and we agreed, we built this together, and we were splitting the company, and we were both going to stay on. And the judge was like, wow, this was the easiest one I've ever yeah. seen come in yeah. front of me. So it, it, is, it is, I think it's surprising, at least for me, and I think probably for a lot of people listening, just because it, it, it seems to me that it takes a remarkably like clear-headed people to come to this agreement to say, hey, you know, like we're not going to be romantic partners anymore, but we're really good business partners and we've got this good thing going and let's keep it going. Now, now when I hear that, I'm thinking, of course you would say that. That makes total sense. Right. But most people don't say that. So the greatest gift that Mark gave me during this period was his honesty. Because at one point he said, I don't know when or if I want to have children. Yeah. And I was in my mid-30s already. So, you know, he said that to me, and it was really, I mean, it was that night that I left. I went to the factory. I had, you know, I brought my dog to the factory all the time. So I really, I went to the factory and I slept in the dog bed that night. But, you know, now that I look back on it, I mean, really... Could you imagine if we would have stayed together and, and we might have had ended up having a kid that he wasn't really into having kids? And, it didn't, and that could have been that road that so many people go down and it ends up being a mess. Yeah. But I did decide to start a family and he was very supportive of that. I think this is like two years later, right? 2003, you, you yeah. gave birth to, to your twins. 
Yep, I was 39 years old. I gave birth to my twins. Um, I mean, I went to Boston IVF, and that's how I, I had the kids. And I, and I have always spoken openly about that, that I was financially and emotionally ready to start a family, and I just needed a little help. Yeah. So at this point, when your girls were born in 2003, was Stacy's pita chips, was the trajectory... Like, was it clear that it was going to be a much bigger brand? Or or did it still feel like it was a, you know, more successful regional brand? So at this point, um, the company was growing like crazy. It was successful enough that we could each be taking a decent salary. We couldn't pull that much out of the business, but, you know, it was enough so that we could each you know, buy a car and, you know, we could each buy our own place or, or whatever. So it was successful enough to do that. But we really, we decided how much we're going to pay each other. And then everything else just stayed in the business. And were companies coming to, to you guys at this point and saying, hey, we want Stacy's pita chips in our, in our stores? Yeah. So I think it was when we got into the club accounts like Costco and Sam's Club and all, all of those. So we started manufacturing for them. And then we got into Trader Joe's and we just, and it was the perfect demographic for us. And Trader Joe's was an amazing company to do business with. They paid on time or early. Wow. And because of that, we were able to not take on equity. Wow. And... At that point, you know, everything just went back into the business, but we were just about to give up, give up a piece of the company, huh. and we never ended up actually doing that because we got Trader Joe's, and they were ordering by the truckload. And when we were selling, when we said truckloads, I mean, it is really amazing when trucks are lined up. We're selling a, a you know, a $2 item. We're not selling computers, you know. So... You know, when we're when we get to the point that we're doing, you know, thirty, forty, fifty million dollars in sales, those are two dollar sales or one dollar sales that are going. So there's like just truckloads of chips going out the wow. door. And at this point, we were we had um, moved to the Sealy Mattress Factory where we bought the building, and it was two or three hundred thousand square feet, something like that. It was basically four acres inside. Wow. And we converted the Sealy Mattress Factory into a giant pita chip factory. I think it's like by 2005, 2006, you're selling like more than $50 million worth of pita chips a year, which 65, is... 65, I think. 65, thank you. <laughs> Um, Pepsi announces that they were acquiring Stacy's. How did that happen? Did they approach you like a year before? Did they say, hey, we're really interested in buying your company? Is is that what happened? Or, or were you looking to sell it? So a couple of months before we saw them at a trade show and, and they were like, oh, this is a good product. And in order for them to even look at you, you have to be at least 50 million in sales and blah, blah, blah. And we were nowhere near there at the time. And, and that was the only contact we ever had with them. Then, you know, a year later at the trade show, again, there was this one month window where we got phone calls from three of the biggest food companies in the world. <laughs> and we were like, we better start looking at this. And this at this time, I had two little kids. You know, they're two years old, uh, single mom. So we we really said, you know what, we should, we should, where we never considered selling, yeah, we should maybe think about this. Yeah. So, so you decide uh, to sell. Yep. And, and then I read that in the middle of working on that deal, uh, there's actually, there's actually a fire in the factory. Yeah, there was a big, big fire and we had already signed the SPA, the stock purchase agreement. We had already signed that, but it hadn't closed. We agreed mm. on a price and all of this. And then we had a fire. There was $9 million in damages, and 25% of the factory was burnt down. Wow. And that's a really hard phone call. When they call you, you don't know what they're going to say. And basically the way that it ended up working out is, you know, we still ultimately had a brand that was worth value. 
And we were like, we will get it back up and running. Mm. And the way we did it was we built a wall across half of the plant. So we were still able to manufacture on the side that wasn't burnt down. And then the other side, we called in every person over the last decade that had helped us with anything. And then people were working, electricians, they brought in like the one guy turned into six guys and overnight, round the clock. We were supposed to close in December. And by January 12th, they inspected the plant and they said, we don't believe it. (laughs) They're back up and running place looks great good to go send them the check (laughs) exactly send them the check which it would have been nice to see a check but (laughs) nowadays it's a transfer so we all sat in front of the computer just looking like waiting for the number to change is it there is it there is it there is it there and then it was like you know the the money transferred in and and we did obviously close the deal i've asked you know other entrepreneurs about the sale of their business, and they're different answers. I, I asked um, the co-founders of Reddit why they agreed to sell their company at the time they did, and the answer was because it was more money than I'd ever had in my life. I didn't grow up with a lot of money, and it was life-changing money, which I think is a fair answer. Um, I, I have to assume that was a, a, a factor, if not the factor, in your decision. It was life-changing money, but it had also become... You know, where we loved this business and we loved running it, at a point, the tables turn and the business starts to run you. So I think it was the perfect timing. Yeah, I was working crazy hours. I was lucky if I got home on time before my kids went to sleep. So for me, it was the right time. For Mark, I think it was the right time. He was burnt out. Um, That being said, after it sold, there is this major... Like, this was my whole life, this and my and my kids, and what am I going to do now? So what, what did you do? I mean, how long did you stay with Stacy's after you sold to Pepsi? One very disastrous year. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, was, what, was, what was disastrous about it? It was so hard. I was contracted to stay, but I really only had to work 20 days a year, but I didn't know what else to do. So I would really go in every day. And I think I was more in the way. And I thought that I was going to be like a buffer between, you know, the new leadership team and the employees. And I think I probably just created more confusion. So it was eight months of, yeah, I probably just was in the way. Yeah. Um, I can imagine, like, you don't sound like a person who is different from the person who you were in high school or college. Of course, we all change and we, we grow and evolve, but, like, you, you sound like a very down-to-earth person. But um, all of a sudden, you were, you had this wealth that y- y- I have to assume you weren't, you had no experience with. How did it change the way you live your life or anything else? I think it, even today... Sometimes when I go to do something, you think twice, oh, can I do that? Oh, can I buy that? Oh, can I, you know? And initially, I went out and I bought a castle, right? Right. I was like, I'm going to buy a big house in a beautiful neighborhood and get a sports car and do all of that. And I did. But then I realized my kids can't ride their bike and they go on the bus and and there's only five kids on the bus because everybody else is going to private school and yeah and I was like we're done Hmm. we're done with this house I put the house on the market and I bought a smaller house in a neighborhood where our neighbors are right next door and you could you know borrow a can opener (laughs) and the kids can ride their bike and yeah that's how I wanted to raise my family. I'm just curious. I mean, you you were young. You were um, in your early 40s, having accomplished this incredible thing, like growing this business and the whole rest of your life ahead of you. I mean, 
huge part of that incredible, exciting, like I, you know, think lots of people listening would say, I, I would love to have that. But at the same time, you had to figure out, I guess, what you were going to do with the rest of your life, right? Right. People are people look at you like you can do anything, yeah. but at the same time, you look at yourself and and you're like, well, now what am I going to do with my life? Of course, I'm I'm a mom and I'm parenting, and that's first and foremost. But um, what else am I? Yeah. And it's a very hard position. It's a very hard place to be. And the past four or five years, I've had some big medical challenges. I had breast cancer. I had an autoimmune disease. I had a full knee replacement. So I was really kind of knocked down for four years. And when you're in that position, you really feel like the money at that point doesn't matter. You know, if there's a day where you think you may die all of a sudden there's this mortality (laughs) yeah and you have to think of your kids it's the most awful thing to think about what's gonna happen with my children (laughs) who's gonna give them a hug who's gonna you know take care of obviously you know i mean i've got family that would that would step in and take care of them but but it's the little things it's the day-to-day things that you mentally go through um, that makes it really hard. How's your How's your health now? Now I'm good. That's great. I had double mastectomies. Yeah. I don't identify myself as a cancer survivor. I just look at it as this was a time in my life, <laughs> and now it's over. <laughs> and you know, all of that, you know, getting past the medical issues, selling the company, all of that adds up to taking control. And that's my sense of bold. <laughs> so you kind of got it. Now you got your mind in a new space. Amazing. Um, Stacey, when you think about the trajectory of your life and your career and the incredible success you had, do you, do you think that it's because of the skills that you brought and the hard work that you brought? Or do you think that luck played a, a bigger role in, in that? You know, a lot of people say, oh, she got lucky. Hmm. That really pisses me off. Because, hmm. you know, yeah, maybe the stars aligned and maybe the timing was right for a lot of things. But each and every one of the challenges and the hurdles that you overcome, others might not have gotten there. And we did. I could have very easily followed the path that my father laid out for me you know I probably could have just stayed in that comfort zone but you know yes by moving to this place and moving to that place and taking on additional challenges you know I think you develop the skill somewhat of a survival skill that's what got us to where we were in 2007 when we sold yeah maybe there was some luck in there but there was a lot of skill that's involved in crossing that finish line. That's Stacy Madison, co-founder of Stacy's Pita Chips. By the way, Stacy is still in the food business. A few years ago, she opened Stacy's Juice Bar in Needham, Massachusetts. And along with her brother Dave, she's just launched a new energy snack called Be Bold Bars. But even with those new ventures, Stacy still gets excited every time she's at the grocery store and sees someone putting a bag of her pita chips in their cart. There was a time I was in the grocery store and this woman picked up two or three bags and she put them in her cart and I just couldn't resist. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go tell her. And, and I did. I went up and I said, those are my chips. And she looks at me and she goes, no, they're not. They're my chips. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> And please do stick around because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. But first, a quick message from one of our 2019 lead sponsors of How I Built This, Hiscox. Hiscox tailors its policies to fit every business's very specific needs, which may explain its 97% customer service rating. Get a quote or buy at hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. 
After James Reeb was murdered in 1965, there was a national outcry. But back at the scene of the crime in Selma, Alabama, many people responded differently. So what happened then? And what could justice look like all these years later? NPR's new podcast, White Lies, is seeking answers. Listen and subscribe now. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around because it's time now for How You Built That. And this story begins about five years ago when Prerak Jathani was a pre-med student at UC Berkeley taking organic chemistry. Let's say you want to get a hydroxyl group onto a tertiary carbon on an alkane chain. Well, then you can use a SN1 reaction. And, and I know, I know, just hearing this is going to stress some of you out. Reaction. Or let's say you wanted to convert an alkene, which is a double bond, into a single bond. Now, here's something you should know, which is that for most pre-med students, organic chemistry sucks. There are people who will cry uh, the night before the final. There are people who would just lose it just because it's so difficult. Now, on the face of it, organic chemistry is actually kind of basic because it's about the essential building blocks of life. Every molecule in your body is an organic chemistry molecule, and those molecules are reacting with other molecules all the time. And so you need to know these compounds pretty well, and you need to know how they interact with one another. You start with molecule A, and you have to figure out how to make molecule B. And maybe it's kind of obvious by now that Prerak was one of those rare pre-med students who really liked organic chemistry. And he made friends with a fellow student, Bilal, who felt the same way. We both very much saw it like a game. And then by the time we graduated, we finally were like, oh my God, we actually have time now. We're both applying to medical school. Let's try to do this thing. Like, let's try to actually create a game and see if we can demystify this daunting obstacle that so many pre-med students face. So Prerak and Bilal recruited a few other organic chemistry students, and they started to develop a board game that you could play in the classroom. And then we literally met once a week at UC Berkeley in one of their classrooms and uh, started brainstorming, how is this going to work? What do we want out of this game? How exactly do we want to convey why we love organic chemistry and why other people should love it too. So they eventually came up with a game where you get this card with a simple carbon chain on it. And the goal is to manipulate that carbon chain into a more complex molecule. And you do that by drawing more cards with all kinds of reactions and substrates and reagents on them. And I have no idea what any of that means. But the main point is the person with the most complex molecule at the end of the game wins. So the earliest version of the game was literally, I kid you not, me and my dad printing this out on normal printer paper, eight and a half by 11, like six cards per sheet, cutting it out with scissors in my downstairs living room. Prerak got a group of friends together to play that first version of the game, but it went on forever. Like they couldn't even finish it. Because it was still really complicated. Our decks were like 300 cards each. And again, they're all in eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. Cards were everywhere. There was a mess, but it, but it worked. So over the next few months, Prerak and his team simplified the game. They eliminated some of the molecules and made each card, each chemical element, into kind of a cartoon figure. So instead of thinking about all of these chemicals as scary chemicals, they actually look really fun. Like our bromine is a is a bro. It has a nice hat on it and it looks like a bro. Anyway, by the spring of 2017, Prerak and his friends went onto Kickstarter and they raised about $15,000 from 18 different countries. And the thing that I think really made us all proud was I think people loved the idea. Now, Prerak was not doing any of this on a full-time basis. While the Kickstarter campaign was going on, he was getting ready to go to med school, which he started in the summer of 2017. This is a side gig for all of us. I'm in med school, I have to take care of patients full time, and yet I still have this other thing that I really want to get done. And today, the game is pretty much done. It's called React with an exclamation point. A company in China is making it. There's a website where you can order it. And so far, they've only sold about 400 games, but Prerock thinks the market is going to grow. I want React to be the supplement for all organic chemistry classes across not even the nation, even the world. And even something they can play before they take the class to really be like, okay, so this is what I'm getting myself into. It's not death, it's not crazy, it's, it's basic science. Pirak Chathani is the co-creator of React. It's a board game about organic chemistry. And for now, he and his colleagues are running the company as a nonprofit. Their backup plan is to become doctors. And if you want to find out more about React or hear previous episodes, head to our podcast page, howibuiltthis.npr.org. 
And of course, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at How I Built This. Our show was produced this week by J.C. Howard with music composed by Ramtin Arablui. Thanks also to Candice Lim, Julia Carney, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is David Ja. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. Hey, my name is Peter Sagal, and I am here to help you with the most pressing problem facing civilization today. There are too many good podcasts to listen to. Now, why not avoid that whole problem by listening to an extremely silly podcast hosted by me? On Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, it's wisecracks about the week's news, shenanigans, fart jokes, and general silliness. And doesn't that sound pretty great right now? Listen to the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me podcast from NPR.